So last Sunday, the house was packed. We worshiped in three Easter services, even had a crazy fun Easter egg hunt on the lawn. And we celebrated the joy that we can have in Jesus once and for all sacrifice on the cross. The music was spot on. The sermon was challenging. There were Easter lilies all across here and people who have been away came home. And our time together was so good as we celebrated that Jesus conquered death forever. On that same weekend, our Jewish friends celebrated Passover. And 50 days after that, they will gather to celebrate the Festival of Weeks, which is the celebration of the fruits of the harvest. As Easter people, we will gather at that same time to celebrate Pentecost. Not quite as common as Easter or Christmas, but incredibly important to the foundation of our faith. Be sure to return here on Sunday, May the 28th to celebrate the Holy Spirit. But what happened in the in-between time? The already, not yet. What does Jesus do after his resurrection and before his ascension back to heaven? We hope to answer, what now? As we embark on a new sermon series, I saw Jesus each week from now until Pentecost. And each week, you're gonna see how Jesus spent 40 days on the earth. He consoled his followers. He eased their concerns. He instructed them for the future. And I'll leave the rest of the story for you to hear each Sunday. Today, I'll share with you how Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene outside the empty tomb. Mary from Magdala on the Sea of Galilee, she's one of the women who followed Jesus and his disciples in the three years of ministry. And despite the highly male-centric society of Palestine in the first century, Mark tells us that Mary and these other women played an important role They provided for Jesus out of their own resources. They cared for his needs while he had no home, but traveled throughout the countryside. And Luke, his gospel tells us specifically about Mary Magdalene early on, that she is freed from seven demons that tormented her. And at the end, she stands present at the foot of the cross at the crucifixion of our Lord, Mary is mentioned in all four gospels. She is a devoted follower. Now, when Chad preaches, he's very good about preparing you if we have a tough passage to wrestle. And while he and I have different preaching styles, I do want to model that for you today. This is a tough passage if We're going to see it and experience it through Mary's eyes. There is grief to deal with here. And that can make us uncomfortable. But any time that we experience change, there's a resulting loss and that is our grief. There's also a matter of our sight, 
or really, I guess I should say, our blindness. There's a matter of our spiritual blindness. For Mary, it was momentary, as we'll see. But we're gonna wrestle with that as well. And I encourage you, hang on. I am an encourager, and I do promise that we will see some hope before our time in this room is over. I do believe that there is a reason why Jesus appears to Mary first, not to the disciples, for example. So hopefully that becomes clear in our time. As I wrote this sermon, I prayed for each one of you to receive it, to stand there with me, with Mary at the edge of the empty tomb. So, Let's read this passage, picking up where Beth so beautifully left off in John chapter 20. Today's passage is John 20, 11 through 18. So open your Bibles, get out your Bible app, whatever works for you to see God's word. Again, it's John 20, verses 11 through 18. I'm reading today from the New Living Translation, beginning at verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? And she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew or really Aramaic, um, for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave them his message. Thanks be to God for his holy word. One year ago this spring, my daddy passed away and I miss him like crazy, but I'm doing better working through processing my grief. It was awful for a while. And then I was hard on myself about that. For goodness sakes, I'm trained in this. I purposefully took a seminary class. Grief, loss, death and dying and pastoral care so that I can respond pastorally to individuals, to families, and even to communities that are in grief. I walk alongside many of you in your journey with grief. So I ought to be able to handle my own, right? It took the gentle care of Mark Smith, cannot look at you right now, It took the gentle care of Mark Smith to sit me down and to help me process why the holiday of Thanksgiving was just shredding me, 
why for the first time in my whole life, I wasn't looking forward to my birthday in December, let alone Christmas. The frustrating fog that will not lift, the emotional ambushes that come at you with certain songs or memories or holidays. Grief is uncomfortable, whether it's ours or someone else's. It's just not where we want to be. But any time that we experience change, there is a resulting loss. And yes, that is our grief. If we do not deal with that loss, if we do not process our grief, then life can go sideways. And that downturn is a lot harder to deal with and for a much longer time than our uncomfortable grief. As Mary processes her grief, she's weeping in deep pain. She stands there at the edge of this empty tomb. And I encourage you to stand there with her. Stand there with me. As you stoop down with me and you peer inside, I pray that your heart is prepared for a surprise. She finds these two angels, messengers of God, dressed in radiant, dazzling white. Note, they were not there in the previous verses where Beth read. They were not there for Mary or for John or for Peter. And they went in the tomb. They saw the burial fabrics. They saw the linen. Now these angels, they're robed in bright, brilliant white. They're kind of hard to miss, right? But then Mary, when she returns, when she stands there alone, weeping and mourning the loss of her dear friend, the loss of this healing, saving, forgiving movement she's been a part of for three years, she bends down and she's able to see. Anglican bishop and Bible scholar N.T. Wright wonders, I'll have to tell Beth about that, he wonders if maybe the angels had been there when Mary and John and Peter first had been inside the tomb. He wonders maybe sometimes you can only see angels through tears. You see, when people are afraid, angels tell them not to be. And when people are in tears, angels ask them why. And here, Mary is real and raw with her grief and cries out, they have taken away my Lord. As you stoop down with me, And you look inside with Mary in whatever your own loss, whatever your own change may be, you can say it too. They've taken away my home, husband, wife, dignity, job, friendship, relationship, routine, whatever that may be. What is it? in that tomb that needs to be restored for you or or 
reconciled for you. Change is loss. And it naturally needs to be grieved. They have taken away my Lord. The world's grief. Israel's grief is concentrated in Mary's grief. Now with Mary and with me, turn around from the tomb and see the stranger standing there. It's Jesus, but Mary doesn't know that it's him. For whatever reason, she is blinded from seeing her dear friend and recognizing his face. And this is another place where our passage in John may be tough. Besides the grief, there's also a matter of our spiritual blindness. Mary has a moment of this And I don't believe it's a coincidence that I'm preaching on this particular passage. Like grief, I have experienced spiritual blindness. I went for years not seeing Jesus' saving grace in my life. Knew him from birth. I'm talking Presbyterian in the womb. But for a time as a teenager and much of my 20s, I was rebellious Only child rebellious against strict parents. Glad they didn't have GPS and cell phones. Rebelling against Jesus to the point that I stopped thinking there was a way that he could ever forgive me. That he would want to forgive me. This is just how it's gonna be. And then that time I'm embarrassed to tell you, I sure made myself judge and jury of others and of their worthiness. Throughout it all, I never stopped believing in him. I don't know, maybe that was just the righteous prayers of grandparents or something. But when he called my name, that's when I really began to have hope. I was 32 when God called me to ministry and I was 33 when Jesus called my name and made sure that I understood forgiveness, that I understood how he sees me and how he sees you. This spiritual blindness, it can be a blindness of familiarity. We've become so accustomed to seeing life as it is that we miss out on how God wants to bless us. It can be a blindness of settling. We don't know, or maybe we don't believe that God will ever change anything, so why bother? Or it might be a blindness of spirit, like Mary here in a fog of grief. Maybe it's like a desert of prayer in our prayer life. And like Mary here, we simply do not see Jesus in that moment. Instead, Mary sees a gardener. Now John's gospel portrayal of Jesus as a gardener is not meant to suggest that he was literally gardening that day, although it is kind of humorous to think about it that way. And 
the word for gardener in Greek is only mentioned one time, this one time in the entire New Testament. So instead, I invite you to see this illustration of Jesus' role as the one who plants us, the one who grows us, much in the same fashion as in Genesis 2, when our heavenly Father is the Lord God who planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man he formed. In that same way, Jesus gets his hands dirty in the soil of our hearts. He brings us to life and he cultivates us with care so that we really thrive. Franco Mormando is not a theologian or a pastor. He's an art historian, and I want to point out to you his theological grasp of the situation. He says that Jesus, the gardener, was a traditional theme that can be traced all the way back through arts to the early church days. He writes, Mary's misidentification was meant to remind us of a spiritual reality. Jesus, the gardener, he is the gardener of the human soul, eradicating evil, noxious vegetation and planting the flourishing seeds of virtue. That is why Jesus is so often found wearing a floppy hat and toting a shovel or some garden tool in the resurrection art of Renaissance and Baroque Europe. He's the caretaker of humanity bending down to bring us up, to make us full and healthy and beautiful. Likewise, back in 1882, English preacher Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this passage. And he declared that the church is Christ's Eden, watered by the river of life and fertilized for all manner of fruits to be brought forth to God, that Jesus, our second Adam, walks in the church, the garden. And in this spiritual Eden, he dresses it, he keeps it. And so in this way, perhaps Mary is right, supposing that Jesus is the gardener. John's gospel suggests that in this way, Jesus, the new Eden gardener, does what Adam could not do. Jesus' resurrection broke ground in this garden, making it the beginning of a massive restoration project. What needs to be restored in your life? At the empty tomb, Jesus says, Mary. And when he calls her name, he is now recognizable. He is the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. The physical resurrection of Jesus demonstrates to us that he is the living Christ. Not an imposter, not a false prophet, but he is indeed the ruler of the eternal kingdom of God. And as such... He is the good shepherd who knows the name of every one of his sheep. And each little lamb knows Jesus' voice, recognizes his call, 
We need to hear his call. We need to hear him call our names. Be ready to hear him call your name. Because resurrection shows us that our spiritually blind selves can be brought back into focus, back to life, with the same power, the same divine power that brought Jesus out of that tomb. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 is my favorite passage in all of the Bible because it demonstrates that power and that possibility. Let this fall afresh on you. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our great God is ready to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we can fathom, more than all we can ever ask or imagine. So buckle up. And I totally understand Mary's joyful response to Jesus. I'm a hugger. Y'all know that by now, right? I would have reached out to touch him also. I would have reached out for his arm or maybe taken his hand. But when Jesus says not to cling to him, he doesn't mean that as a rebuke against her. He stops her because he is not returning in order to resume his former self, his former way of life with his disciples and an earthly body. Since Jesus has not yet ascended at this point in scripture, he can appear to her He can assure her of his presence, but Jesus will no longer live the daily physical life of the earthly ministry. Well, now Mary Magdalene must go run back to the disciples again and tell them that Jesus is alive. And this time she is to call them his brothers. It's the first time he's referred to them in this familial way. And Mary is to tell them from Jesus, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. This new way of speaking, no longer just disciples, friends, no longer just my father, the father who sent me. Now, this is a new relationship. Something has altered decisively. Something has been achieved here. A new relationship has sprung to life and the disciples are welcomed into a new world. A world where they can know God the way Jesus knew God. Where they can be intimate children with their father. The Greek language picture here is that comfort, that confidence that we have as children when we climb up in a parent or a grandparent's lap. It's that tender and intimate. And everyone from this moment on in scripture, everyone to us today is welcome in the family. Welcome in his name as a beloved son, a beloved daughter. This 
stunning invitation comes to and through Mary Magdalene, a woman, the first person to see the resurrected Lord. Jesus does the same thing today. He is still near us, ready to hear our cries, ready to heal our hearts. In the resurrection appearance, Jesus comforted the broken. And when he came back, he wasn't frustrated with Mary that she didn't understand. He met her in her grief and he spoke words of new life and peace. Today, our Savior still extends grace for our questions, for our confusion. He still holds us when our hearts are broken, when we're frustrated, when we don't understand. Find comfort in him and then help others to see him. It is our calling to show people what it means to know God and to make him known, to know Jesus and to know the Holy Spirit. Share God's word with the people in your life today. Yes, the big Easter Sunday celebration is over, but what that empty tomb means for us matters all year long. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we're able to directly access God's grace, presence, and reassurance eternally. We have hope. Amen. God of hope, we hold on to you. We are grateful that Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in this way and to the others during his time before his ascension. And we pray that over these days from now through Pentecost, you will show us glimpses of how they see Jesus and how he sees us. Amen.